If you want to open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter 26, as our young ones continue on to worship, you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We often take a couple of minutes at this point in the service to allow you to brag on God and, and how he is using you. Um, our celebration of obedience and how we have shared his story, how we have shared what he's doing in our lives, how we prayed for others, uh, just to be a blessing and to speak of the goodness of God. And this morning, I just wanted to take a moment to share with you um, what uh, our children's minister did. Uh, Miss Jill uh, was doing state training at VBS state training down in Prattville this week. And for her segment, she taught part of what we learned together last fall, how to write your testimony and how to do so in such a way that you can present it outside the church and people understand what you're talking about. And uh, she was just overwhelmed, so blessed at the reception of, uh, of teaching that. And then she said, one of the, the people that went through said, this has changed my life. And, uh, we should be confident in our story. And we as a congregation wrote out our story. What was life like before I met Christ? Not using religious terms, but what was your life like? And then how did you meet Christ? And then after that, what changed? And if you don't have a story, if you listen closely today, and you hear the invitation of God, your story will begin today. And I pray that you would listen to the Lord as he speaks to each of us through his word. Today, uh, we continue in our Refuse series, and this one is entitled Refuse to Defend. We're going to just continue the story of what happened with Jesus. And this is going to lead us all the way through Easter uh, but we're just taking each section at a time uh, in God's word, Matthew 26, 27, and 28. So we're, today we're in Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68. 57 through 68. And if you look just above that scripture, you will see where Jesus was arrested in the garden and the disciples scattered in the garden after the arrest. So this is beginning with verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? 
What is it? These men testify against you. Verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard the blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? As we begin this passage, we notice at the very beginning that Peter is following at a distance. Now, this is after he scattered at the arrest, but somehow he's following at a distance. And it says to see how it ends. We're going to talk more about Peter next week in his denial. But look at verse 59. Verse 59, what are the religious leaders seeking? The chief priests and the councils are seeking what? False testimony. False testimony. What is false testimony? False testimony is someone lying about Jesus. That's what they're looking for. We want someone to step up and lie about Jesus. Why did they need someone to lie? Because lying is the only way they could get a conviction for his crucifixion. Because Jesus is innocent and he's without sin. So it must be with a lie. Now, oddly enough, the religious leaders were loosely following the Old Testament law as they proceeded in this hearing. Just for your benefit, achieving their purpose, Deuteronomy 19.15 says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, by that same law, if someone was caught being a false testimony or giving a false testimony, they would be subject to the same punishment of the innocent party. So it's a pretty big deal to step up to lie when you know that by the law, you could also suffer crucifixion being caught lying. But scripture says they found no false witnesses, though many came forward. I thought that has to be a dilemma for the religious leaders. The dilemma being this, they have arrested Jesus because they bribed Judas to turn him over. They convinced a mob that he was a criminal and now they have him and they have to bring a conviction, but they can't find anyone to lie good enough about him. 
That's a problem. A kangaroo court is an unofficial court where you're seeking to convict someone without any wrongdoing. That they, they have not only not done something wrong, there's no evidence of anything being done wrong. But that's exactly what the religious leaders were doing with Jesus before Caiaphas. I'm wondering, how bad must a liar be for your lies not to be received? It said that many of them showed up. Many of them were giving false testimony about Jesus. And they were like, no, that's not going to fly. Next. And so they were just coming up. I can imagine a line. I'll tell a lie. I'll tell a lie. Nope, not good enough. And how many bad liars lined up to risk their lives that should the religious leaders say, you just gave false testimony, you now get crucified. But it said many came to lie about Jesus. Verse 60 ends with these words. At last, two came forward. At last, two came forward. And what a relief the religious leaders must have had at this point. All the other liars failed. But finally, they have two liars whose two lies coincided. And it was enough that they could move forward with the conviction. This is what they said. This man, speaking of Jesus, said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. After I read that, I thought, well, it's close. It's kind of what he said. But we know that they're false testimony, right? That's a false testimony. So what is it that Jesus really said? For that, we would go to John 2. I'll just read this. John 2, 18 through 21. Jesus just cleansed the temple. And here's what happened. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build the temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Well, the high priest asked Jesus, what do these men testify about with you? And this is where Jesus refused to defend. He didn't speak up. He refused to defend himself. And the question I would ask is, why did Jesus refuse at this point to defend? And I came up with three reasons. First, it was a fulfillment of prophecy. Here's the prophecy, Isaiah 53, 7. If you've read your devotion this week, this is one of the days. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. He was not defending himself. The second reason, Jesus could not deny that he made some form of that statement. But further, he could not explain the spiritual meaning behind that to worldly-minded men. Now, mind you, we're talking about religious leaders here. 
the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And Jesus is like, I can't even explain it to you. You won't get it because you're worldly, not spiritual. The third reason that he did not defend himself is there's nothing incriminating here. You can't incriminate someone for saying, I could, or I'm able to do this. He wasn't attempting to destroy the temple. Now, if he was attempting to destroy the temple, that's a big deal. He could have been arrested for that. So Jesus really had nothing to say in this point. So in his frustration, because this was not enough, we have two liars telling pretty good lies, but then Jesus is not defending himself, and he gets riled up, Caiaphas does, the high priest, gets riled up and he says, I adjure you. Now that word adjure is to put someone under oath under the living God. It's a big deal. Now in our culture... An oath, a a spoken word, carries about as much weight as a pinky promise. It used to mean something. But you watch any kind of a court today, and they will get on the stand, and they will lie under oath until they're caught under oath, and then they will apologize under oath, and then they'll change their story under oath. It means nothing anymore. But in this day, in the Jewish culture, even though they were finagling the the law, they were trying to skirt around what was happening here, and they certainly weren't pure of heart, they still had the law about an oath before God. Let me read you two verses here. Exodus 20, verse 7. This would be in the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Leviticus 19.12 You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So they were taking this seriously. So Caiaphas said, I adjure you, which means I'm putting you under oath before the living God. Well, the religious leaders knew that Jesus was from God. We've addressed this a few times already. But if you want to go back to John chapter 3, the familiar passage of John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That was spoken to Nicodemus, who was a religious leader. And prior to that verse, Nicodemus said this, We know that you're from God. We know, he's speaking on behalf of the the religious leaders. We know that the things you do are from God. So there's no mistaking. They already knew he was from God. And then you go to John chapter 10 and they know that he's claiming to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior. So the high priest asked him something he could not deny put him under oath and ask him this. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus can't deny that. He said, you said so. 
or it's just as you said. That's who I am. That's all that Caiaphas needed to convict him. But Jesus didn't stop there. You notice in in the word, he kept talking. Listen to what he said. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So in his response, he accomplished two things. The first is he reinforced the prophecies that had been told about him already. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Daniel 7, 13. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. The second thing that he accomplished here, Jesus predicted his resurrection, his ascension, and his return. That's the gospel. And Jesus was proclaiming that right before the high priest as he was trying to convict him to death. Jesus was basically saying here, you're going to convict me to death. I'm going to give my life for crucifixion, but I am going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to ascend back to heaven by my father and I am coming back. I am the Lord. What a powerful moment in the life of Jesus here. Well, Caiaphas then turned to the council. You've heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And their response, I believe, rang through eternity. All the heavenly beings, as they watched what was happening, they heard the verdict. He deserves death. This is the one man in all of history who does not deserve death. For perspective, we must not forget that that when Jesus did this, as he was standing there before the high priest, as he was being arrested just moments earlier, as he was going down this journey, he did it in obedience to the Father, listen, on your behalf. He did this for you and me. Romans 6, 23, beautiful verse, and you can share the gospel with the one verse. Romans 6, 23 begins this way. The wages of sin is death. And we know what the word wages mean for those who are working. That's what you earn, what you deserve. And it says there that sin in any form or capacity, any multiplication thereof, is deserving of death. So whether it's one sin or a mountain of sin, which by the way, no matter your age, no matter your church experience, we all have mountains of sin. 
whether it was a white lie or you've taken the life of someone else, we deserve death. The council looked at Jesus and said, he deserves death, but he does not. He's innocent. We deserve death because of our sin against God. But in his mercy, by his love, God submitted himself to our death for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God for eternity. See, there's no one here. There's no one listening today that's not found guilty of sinning against God. And so we all are falling into the category of the wages of sin is death. But the verse continues on, Romans 6, 23. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Well, that's good news. See, Jesus Christ purchased eternal life for you and me through his death, which God now offers you and me as a gift. Now, if you refuse his gift, then you're going to be judged for your sins. And you will be separated from God. Scripture says you will be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. It's not the one and done. It's the one and continues to go and go and go. The eternal fire. It's described multiple times in God's word as where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's not a party in hell. You will not be hanging with your buds. Uh, this is a terrible place for eternity. And sadly, there are many in our community, listen, who don't even know that there's a free gift from God. They're just trucking through life, trying to do the best they can with what they have. And they're stumbling, they're falling, they're, they're walking in the dark, they're blinded, and they cannot see what to do, where to go. They don't know the answer. So they keep searching in all the wrong places. But family of God, we have a responsibility to tell them about the free gift of God. That's for them too. But how will they know if we don't share? We've, we talked before you know, it's great to invite people to church, but that's not the same as going and sharing Christ. We're each told to go and share. Share where you are in the context of your life, whether it's at school or at work, in retirement, whatever capacity, in athletics, wherever you are, that you go and you share. Just as a reminder, we've been left here for no other reason. It's great to attend, but we have been left here on this earth to go, to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that those who do not know him can know him, so that those who are oblivious to what God has done, they can know what God has done. They can know that God loves them and that he is a gift for them. There are others, and there might be some here today that have ignored the invitation of God or they've rejected God's gift. 
And it's still our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ that we live out what we say we believe as a testimony to the living God. We say that God changes lives. We say that he is all-powerful, that he's all-knowing. And if we're proclaiming that in our lives, but we live just like the world, what is our testimony about a living God who's all-powerful? So we live what God said we should live. And we live what we say we believe. And we speak of the goodness of God. And we just continue to do so. Keep pointing your life to him again and again and again. How do you receive this gift that God offers? And simply put, you respond to his invitation. Now, as you respond, I'm about to say a few things. This is not a check mark list. This is what happens as you respond. So as you respond to the invitation of God, you repent. That word repent, we've talked about it before. You've probably heard the word before, and it's basically the changing of direction. But what we've learned recently, it's changing of your life based on a complete change of mind in regards to sin and righteousness. And that's seen in your behavior and your attitude. So what do you believe about sin? Well, we know it's wrong. We know that the wages of sin is death. But do you believe it's wrong enough in your life that you would turn from it and say, by the grace of God, by the power of God, I turn from this activity because it's disgracing the name of God. Do you believe it that much? Do you turn to his righteousness? Do you recognize the holiness of God? There's nothing that compares to the holiness of God. We're not good enough to compare to his holiness. So we repent. We also yield. We yield our lives to the authority of God. When we talk about surrender, that's what this means. It isn't mentally agreeing that Jesus died on the cross. It's not mentally agreeing that Jesus was raised from the dead. It's not mentally agreeing that through his death he paid for my sin, that he became sin, that I might become the righteousness of God. It's not just agreeing mentally. It's yielding the authority of my life and saying, you are the boss of my life now. I was the boss to this moment, but no more. You are the Lord. That's not just a name. It's a position in your life, a position in your heart. And if you're here this morning and you've agreed mentally, but you've not surrendered the authority of your life to him, you're not saved according to scripture. He must be the Lord of your life. What are you trying to control right now? Are you going to let it go? Will you let him be the Lord of all? It's really easy to yield up the parts that we don't like and and the parts that we recognize that we can't control. But he's asking for every part. Every part of your life is yielded to him. Every relationship, every decision, every occupation, every class. When when he becomes our Lord, we confess him. We just saw a confession through baptism. We do that verbally. It's not something you keep quiet and 
and you rest on in your heart. We proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. That's a confession. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's just a small element. But but what you're saying is, I believe God's word to be true with all that I am. And scripture says, Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not just repeating. There's a decision and there's a yielding that must happen for you to experience what God offers. After the verdict, after they looked at each other and said, well, he is guilty. And he deserves death. The wickedness of their hearts were shown. It says they spit in his face. What would provoke a religious leader to spit in the face of Jesus? They know, you know, here who he is, but they spit in his face. It goes on to say they they struck him. So now they're just beating up on Jesus. They know he's innocent. They know they have brought those false testimonies against him, that he's guilty of nothing. But they're spitting on him. They're striking him. They're slapping him. They're making fun of him. Wow. But even here, they're just fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. God already said this is what was going to happen. And this was only the beginning of a grueling journey to the cross where Jesus would become sin, be forsaken by his father, And give his life for you and for me. And he did this on our behalf. Because we could not do it for ourselves. So you don't have to endure eternal suffering. You don't have to endure separation from God. He did it on your behalf. As we close... I'm going to ask seven personal questions. Each question has the same answer. So I'll lead you on the first answer, and then you're going to know what the answer is for the rest of them. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We're personalizing what we know to be true in Scripture. So I want you to to close your eyes and listen and then answer, okay? So just close your eyes. The first question is, who does Jesus love? Now, let me just pause here for a second. We think of John three sixteen. well, he loves the world, but we're personalizing this. So what I want you to say out loud is this, me, okay? So from here on out, you, know, you already know what the answer is, but I want you to answer it like you believe it. Who was Jesus disgraced for? 
Who was he the target of mockery for? Who did he suffer for? Who did he die for? Who was he raised from the dead for? Who does he invite to know him as Lord and Savior? Listen, we don't have to complicate this. But if you have not received God's gift of eternal life, through his death, his burial, his resurrection, if you have not received that and you hear the invitation of God, right now is the time your story begins. Because up to this point, our story ends with death and destruction. We're already on that road until you meet Jesus and until you respond to Jesus as your Lord. But then becomes the new story. The story of a relationship, reconciliation to God, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, love, forgiveness, joy, all that you had hoped for, his peace beyond all understanding, all his promises comes through that decision. But if you have not received it, it's not yours. The gift is now presented to you. I just want to challenge you. If you sit here this morning and you know that you have not received that gift as it's explained in God's word, when we start singing in just a moment, would you come? Would you come? And and just like we had uh, Jennifer a couple weeks ago, here's all that she knew to say. I need Jesus. What else do you need to say? Maybe you're here today and You've received the gift, but you're going to commit yourself today to live what you say you believe. I'm going to proclaim the goodness of God. I want people to know of my testimony that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to live my life in a way that would bring others to Christ. I want to speak the goodness of God. Would you, would you just make that commitment today? Maybe you just want to be part of the family of God and you've kind of been in limbo for a while. If God's leading you here, we welcome you here because he builds his church. But this is our response to what he has spoken in our hearts right now. So I'm gonna ask Ryan and Mike to come up. They're gonna lead us in a time of invitation. And that's all that it is. It's an invitation. I'm going to be here simply to receive you if you need me. You're welcome to deal with God the way he leads you. You might want to just come to the altar and lay down what is the burden in your life. Lay down what is controlling you and walk away. It may be that you fall to your knees before Jesus Christ and say, I need you. Be my Lord. And I give you my life. Let's pray together and then let's respond. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of our worship and you did not deserve death. Lord, I pray that that would resonate in our our hearts and our minds this morning, that what you did, you did it on our behalf. 
We could not do it. It, We did not deserve it. But you offered it to us. Because you love us. So Lord, may our response now bring you glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.